Please take your Bibles and turn back to Mark chapter 2, the passage that Tom read for us this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17 will be our text this morning. In his commentary on this passage, our pastor begins with a compelling question, and that question is this, what is mankind's greatest problem? Well, the answer, of course, is sin. As human beings, our greatest problem is that we are sinners. We have fallen short of God's perfect standard. We have violated His holiness. We have transgressed His law. And to make our status even more dire, the consequences of that sin consequence of that sin is death. We deserve death in this life, and we also are worthy of eternal death in the life to come. Like condemned criminals before a righteous judge, we stand guilty before the law and the punishment, the penalty for our sin is death. So, it would be right to give that answer that the greatest problem mankind has is sin. But, Pastor John goes on in his commentary to point out that humanity's greatest problem is not merely sin, but rather unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin. After all, both heaven and hell are populated with people who were sinners in this life. What distinguishes those two groups? It is that those in heaven have been forgiven and those in hell have not. So, humanity's greatest problem then is unforgiven sin, which means that our greatest need is divine forgiveness. And it is that theme of divine forgiveness that permeates our passage this morning here in the first half of Mark chapter 2. Our text features two different men, two different testimonies, two different individuals, both of whom serve as a witness to God's grace. The first was a paralyzed man, likely quadriplegic. Unable to move, he was entirely dependent on others to help him with everything in life. He had no ability to help himself, no capacity for independent movement, no way to move at all. The second man was a publican, a tax collector, one who was hated by his countrymen, a social pariah shunned by the culture around him, likely disowned by his own family. He was an outcast, viewed as a traitor, a turncoat, and a sellout. These two men, one desperately disabled and the other deeply despised, moved in different circles and had very different lives. And yet they shared a fundamental problem. They were both sinners in need of forgiveness. 
We meet these two men in the first half of the second chapter of Mark, and their stories may at first seem unrelated, but I'm hoping to show you this morning that their stories are very much related to one another. In fact, these stories appear in both Matthew and Luke as well as Mark. Matthew chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 5, where they are also placed right next to each other. The reason for that is not only because they represent a chronological sequence, these events occurred shortly one after the other, but also because they illustrate and resonate with the same divine theme, the theme of forgiveness. Here in the second chapter of Mark, the first man's story is found in verses 1 through 12, the second man's story in verses 13 to 17. And again, these stories represent two different historical events, and yet they share the same basic features, and they serve to illustrate the same divine truth. So I want to unpack these stories together this morning in parallel fashion, going back and forth between the two. Tom graciously read our passage for us as the Scripture reading this morning, so we're ready to jump right in. And as we do, we'll organize our thoughts around five core elements, five core elements that are common to each of these stories and that convey the rich truth of this powerful section of Scripture. Let's begin with the first element of each story. It's something that I have simply labeled the surrounding context. The surrounding context. This includes both the immediate setting and the events leading up to what we read about. We'll start in verses 1 and 2 where we find the setting for the first of these two scenes. There Mark writes, When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that He was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and He was speaking the word to them. gives us the introductory setting for the first scene. Now, if we look at verse 13, we find the introductory setting for the second of these two accounts. And he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. You'll notice some common details between the introductory setting for both of these scenes. In both of them, Jesus was ministering in and around the area of Capernaum, the largest town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and also the headquarters of Jesus' Galilean ministry. You also notice that in both scenes, large crowds of people were flocking to Jesus. In verse 2, there's so many people in the house, there's no way to get in. And in verse 13, the crowds are flocking to Him on the shores. Also, in verse 15, we'll see that there's another crowded house, so that both scenes actually take place within a crowded home. 
And then finally, you'll notice that at the outset of both of these scenes, Jesus is teaching. It's because that was a primary part of His ministry. In verse 2, He's teaching the Word of God. And in verse 13, He's teaching the crowds, instructing them in God's truth. These parallel scenes then occur in the course of our Lord's public ministry in Galilee. And if we were to take even one step further back in establishing the surrounding context, we would look at Mark chapter 1, where the emphasis is on Jesus' divine authority. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, the crowds are amazed that Jesus teaches as one who has authority, not like the scribes. Verses 23 to 28, He demonstrates that authority by casting out a demon. In verses 29 to 31, he again demonstrates that authority by healing Peter's mother-in-law from a severe fever. In the verses that follow, he will cast out many demons and he will heal many who are sick, demonstrating his authority over both the physical world and the spiritual realm. Then in verses 40 to 44, he heals one who was not only incurably sick, but also viewed as spiritually unclean, a leper who comes to him and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, in a glorious moment of grace, says, I am willing, be cleansed. Mark chapter 2, as Jesus comes back into Capernaum, we find that the question of his authority is still a primary part of the theme of this text. In this case, it will be our Lord's authority to forgive sin. We also understand why there would be so many people flocking to see him. They have been compelled by his miracles and convicted by his message, and they're curious about who he is is. So, having then established the surrounding context, we are ready to dive into each story. We move then from the surrounding context to our second element, something we might call the sinner's condition. The sinner's condition. As we noted earlier, these two stories surround two characters, each of whom have a critical condition. First was a paralytic. We meet him and his friends in verses 3 and 4, and you can see what Mark says there. Chapter 2, verse 3, "...and they came, bringing to Jesus a paralytic, carried by four men." Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. A couple things to note about this man and his condition. Verse 3 emphasizes his utter inability as a paralyzed man, likely from the neck down, living in the first century world, he was entirely dependent on others for every aspect of life. Having heard about Jesus' miracles, he no doubt desired 
to be healed himself, but in and of himself, he had no means by which to get to Jesus. In verse 4, we learn more about his friends. And clearly, this man had some friends who loved him deeply because they were determined to get him to Jesus. But verse 4 adds to the desperation of this man's situation because we find out that even the friends are unable to get to Jesus because when they arrive at where Jesus is, the place is so packed, it's impossible to get to the Lord. According to Luke 5.18, the parallel passage, they try to go through the door, but they meet an impenetrable wall of people. And so in desperation, they make their way to the roof. A typical first century Galilean house was a one-story dwelling, had a flat roof with large timbers that held up the roof, and then smaller timbers that crisscrossed those large timbers. On top of that, a thatch was laid made up of straw and sticks and mud to hold it all together, and then roof tiles were placed on top. For many of these homes, they used that upper flat area as almost a deck or an outside patio, and so they would put stairs going up on the outside, and that is almost certainly the case in this situation. So, because the roof was flat, because there were stairs leading to it, these men got creative, and they took their friend up on the roof. Undeterred by the crowds below, they began to remove the roof tiles. They began digging through the thick layer of thatch. They started to move some of the smaller timbers, eventually making a hole large enough to fit their friend through. This, of course, caused no small commotion as debris from the ceiling began to fall on the crowds of people in the room below. And yet, despite causing a major disturbance and no small amount of property damage, they persisted in their task undeterred. Let's hit pause on that scene for a moment and jump to our other scene to talk about the condition of the other sinner talked about in this second story. Here we find another sinner, a tax collector, and he also is in a bad way. Parallel to the paralytic is this publican. Whereas the paralytic was totally disabled, this man is utterly despised. One was a cripple, the other a criminal. Mark introduces him in the first part of verse 14. As Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. What are we to make of this man, Levi? Well, given the information in the text, his name being Levi, his father's name being Alphaeus, we know that he was Jewish, likely from the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe, the Levites assisted in the temple. And given that his father's name is mentioned... Levi apparently was from an upstanding Jewish family. 
And while those details may appear minor to us, they actually underscore the depths of this man's shame. Here was a man from a Levitical line and an upstanding family, but instead of honoring his heritage, he betrayed his people by choosing to collect taxes for the hated Romans, doing so to pad his own pockets. The Jewish people regarded tax collectors as the worst of the worst. They were traitors, enablers of the Roman occupiers and sellouts who exploited their own people for the sake of their own profits. And so, you have this man, Levi, a tax collector, the worst of the worst, hated by society and hated by his own family, likely. Because Capernaum was the largest town in the Sea of Galilee, and because important trade routes went through this fishing town, tax collecting was a very profitable venture there. Rome required tax collectors to raise or to acquire a certain threshold of funds, kind of a quota system, but anything they earned above and beyond that was theirs to keep. And that, of course, incentivized corruption. In addition to income taxes and poll taxes and other kinds of taxes, Rome also taxed the sale and movement of goods. And given that Levi's toll booth was near the shores of the Sea of Galilee, right between Capernaum and the sea, it's likely that he taxed those who brought their fish to market after fishing on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it's possible that Levi, known more commonly by his Greek name Matthew, would have actually collected taxes from some of Jesus' other disciples, the fishermen Peter, James, Andrew, and John. Because, again, there was an incentive to collect more than what Rome required, tax collectors were known for squeezing people to get everything out of them that they could, and the result was that they earned for themselves a reputation not only as being traitors, but also as being crooks and robbers. Tax collectors were regarded as the very dregs of society, the most sinful of sinners. They were excommunicated from the synagogue, cut off from social life. This is the situation in which Levi is found when Jesus sees him sitting in a tax booth, driven by greed, but also overcome with guilt and constantly reminded by his fellow Jews that he was a traitor, a contemptible crook. But what a picture, what a picture these two sinners, very different, but what a picture they provide of the helpless and hopeless state of any unforgiven sinner. The first was totally unable, the second profoundly corrupt. Thankfully, that is not where these stories end. 
We come to the third element of these accounts, to the central character of each story, from the surrounding context to the sinner's condition. Thirdly, to the Savior's compassion. The Savior's compassion. Incredibly, the desperate condition of each sinner was met with divine compassion from our Lord. Look at how Jesus responded to the paralyzed man and his friends. We left them in verse 4. They were digging a hole in the roof while Jesus was teaching below. And I'll be honest, if all of a sudden this morning someone started digging a hole in the ceiling, I would be quite flustered. And maybe you would be a bit distracted. But that is not at all how Jesus responds Not only does he respond with compassion, his focus is on this man's greatest need, which was not physical, but spiritual. Look at verse 5, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Noting the faith of this man and his friends. The Lord addressed his greatest need. Your sins are forgiven. What relief and peace must have flooded that man's soul in that instant? Undoubtedly, he had wondered whether or not his condition was some sort of divine curse or the result of some sin in his life. Certainly, the self-righteous society of first century Judaism regarded his disability as a sign of divine displeasure. And with a simple declaration of infinite compassion, our Lord wipes away every fear and all of this man's guilt. Your sins are forgiven. What a statement. And what a mercy for the Savior to extend to this incapable sinner complete and total forgiveness. Clearly, this man could not merit forgiveness. He could not do anything. Well, we see a similar expression of the Savior's compassion in verse 14 and 15 in our second story We look again to this parallel scene with Levi, the tax collector. Look at verse 14 again. As Jesus passed by, going from the shore back to Capernaum, or from Capernaum back to the shore, as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Now, you'll notice that it was the Lord who took the initiative in this scene. Jesus saw Levi. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, it says that Jesus noticed Levi. And having taken notice of him, the Lord then called him to repentance. He commanded him, follow me. 
And Levi got up and he followed and he left his life of tax collecting behind. In fact, according to Luke, Levi not only got up, he left everything behind. And of course, Matthew became one of the eleven the faithful disciples of Jesus. But our Lord's compassion towards Levi didn't stop there. Not only did he seek out the sinner and call him to repentance, but he also went to Levi's house and he had dinner with him and he called his friends to repentance. And given the stigma associated with tax collectors, no self-respecting rabbi would even want a tax collector as a follower, let alone go into his house. But Jesus was not concerned with what the self-righteous religious leaders thought about him. He had come to seek and save the lost, and that included this tax collector and his friends. According to Luke chapter 5, Levi held a great feast to celebrate his conversion. We sang, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing this morning. That was a song written by Charles Wesley in the 18th century. He wrote it on the one-year anniversary of his conversion. And that's because when Christians think about their conversion, it makes them want to celebrate. And Levi wanted to celebrate. And he also wanted Jesus to extend forgiveness to his friends and to call them to repent and to follow him. Perhaps we can pause here for just a moment and consider the great mercy of our Savior that he would show compassion to a paralytic and he would show compassion to a social pariah, a tax collector. Verse 5 emphasizes the faith of the paralytic. Verse 14 emphasizes the repentance of the tax collector. But those things were only a response to Jesus' initiative. Our Lord extended His grace. Both of these men recognized their spiritual bankruptcy. Both recognized that they were uncapable unable, unworthy. Both of them responded to our Lord's infinite grace and goodness in faith and repentance. Because our Lord came to seek and save sinners, He saved a cripple and a criminal extending to them forgiveness, not because of their worthiness, not because of their ability, but because of His great grace and mercy. Well, as we continue to unpack these two accounts, we find a third set of characters. We move from the sinner's condition to the Savior's compassion to now, fourthly, the skeptic's condemnation. The skeptic's condemnation. In both of these accounts, the scribes and the Pharisees are standing by like hawks ready to pounce when they see Jesus do anything that doesn't measure up to their expectations or their self-righteous standard. We first see their skepticism and their scrutiny 
in verses 6 and 7, having heard Jesus extend forgiveness to this paralyzed man who's just been let down through a hole in the ceiling, their response is not faith like the paralytic's response. Their response is indignation. Some of the scribes, verse 6, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Scribes, of course, were experts in the law. They were the most elite of the Pharisees, the, the leaders of the leaders. In this case, their theology was basically orthodox with, of course, one glaring problem. They were correct that only God can forgive or pardon sinners. But they were dead wrong to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, and their fundamental flaw was that they refused to acknowledge that Jesus was from God and indeed is God that he truly possessed the divine authority he claimed. So instead of responding in faith, they respond with derision and denial. Their response in the second scene, if we go back, was similar. In verse 16, after observing Jesus eating dinner at Levi's home, with Levi the tax collector and the other sinners who were there, the dregs of society, the worst of the worst, the scribes again were filled with indignation. Look at verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? If this man is from God, he wouldn't hang out with such ungodly folks, would he? Instead of responding in repentance like Matthew and his friends did, they react with incredulity, judgmentalism, condemnation. In verse 7, their question was, why does he speak this way? In verse 16, why does he eat this way? But neither of those questions was actually grounded in a genuine concern for Jesus or a genuine desire to learn why he was doing what he was doing. The questions, the inquiries are actually a line of inquisition. They seek to condemn. They allege wrongdoing. They assume some sort of fault. But, even so... Their questions set the stage for the final element of each of these stories. Having considered the surrounding context, the sinner's condition, the Savior's compassion, and the skeptic's condemnation, we come to a final feature in each of these scenes. The stunning conclusion. The stunning conclusion. Everyone likes a plot that ends with an unexpected twist, and these stories do not disappoint. Though the ending may not be unexpected to us because these are familiar accounts, put yourself in the shoes of those who were there. 
witnessing this firsthand and in real time. And imagine how shocking it must have been when each account ends the way that it ends. In the first scene, the Lord responded in a way the scribes could have never anticipated. To those who questioned his authority to forgive sins, he answers in verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his soul that they were reasoning this way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Which is easier to tell the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet, and he went out in the sight of everyone And here's Mark's understatement. And they were all amazed. And they were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. What an astonishing miracle. A a paralyzed man was suddenly given the ability to walk and to run and to jump. And, And this is because the Creator God the Son, the one who spoke creation into existence, spoke creative words of healing power so that this man was made whole. Nerve endings connected and bones that were brittle were strengthened and muscles that had atrophied suddenly were at full strength. And that man felt sensations he had never felt before, and he jumped to his feet, and he picked up his pallet, and he walked out of that crowded house. A man who moments earlier could not feel his toes could suddenly, could suddenly stand. A man who moments earlier could not feel his hands could suddenly pick up his bed. A man who moments earlier could not bend his legs could walk out of a very crowded room. He wasn't able to walk in, but he could walk out. And in a town like Capernaum, this man would have been well known, his condition, common knowledge, so that the question of whether or not this was a supernatural miracle could not have been disputed. The people were astonished. Our Lord had validated the credibility of his claim to forgive sins. If forgiving sins is only something God can do, then Jesus validated that by doing something else that only God can do. Make the lame walk. Cause the cripple to dance. What a glorious and astonishing ending to that first story. A desperate and disabled man who was brought to Jesus, completely unable to do anything on his own, came in humble faith. And after encountering the Son of God, he left walking and running, and jumping, and he left, more importantly, forgiven. Well, that brings us to our second stunning conclusion, the ending to our second scene. In verse 16, the scribes, in spite of 
what they had just witnessed with the paralytic were again hounding Jesus, seeking to discredit him. Like he did in verse 8, Jesus responded in a way that would have surprised the people who were listening. Because in that culture, you apologize to the religious leaders if you offend them, but Jesus will not apologize. He doubles down. The scribes ask the question, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you in the home of the worst of the worst? What is Jesus' answer? Verse 17, hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 5 adds to repentance. Our Lord used an illustration from the world of medicine. Perhaps He was even thinking back to the healing of the paralytic. But the point was this, it is people who know that they're sick who seek out medical help. People who think they're healthy don't go to the doctor. But all of a sudden, you you develop that pain (laughs) or something isn't quite right. You think, I need to make an appointment. So also, only those who recognize their need, like the paralytic did, only those who recognize their sinfulness, like the tax collector did, only those who know they need forgiveness will cry out to God for mercy. But those who are spiritually self-righteous, those who think they are healthy like the scribes and the Pharisees, they have no desire to seek forgiveness because they think they've earned forgiveness. And so blind to their own sin, the scribes thought they were righteous. They thought they had earned God's favor through their own meritorious actions. And therefore they assumed they didn't even need the forgiveness that Jesus offered. And so Jesus in a sweeping and and stinging rebuke of their self-righteousness and their legalistic system says, I have not come to call those who think they're righteous, the self-righteous. I've come to call those who know they're sinners. Well, these words, verse 17 were indeed a stinging rebuke to the scribes and the Pharisees that day, but they are for us words of eternal hope, words of eternal rescue for those who recognize their sin and their need for divine mercy. In verse 11, Jesus performed a great miracle. He caused a quadriplegic man in first century Galilee to stand up and walk out of the room. This provided undeniable proof of his divine authority. But here in verse 17, the Lord underscored an even greater miracle, one that pointed to the very heart of his saving work, You see, back in verse 9, Jesus asked the scribes, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? 
And the implication is that, at least from a human perspective, it's easier to claim divine authority than to say something that actually demands proof. In other words, anyone could say your sins are forgiven, but if you say get up and walk, the expectation is something has to happen. So from a human perspective, the first statement is easier to say. But if we were to ask the question, which is easier to do, the answer would be the opposite. For God the Son to restore a disabled man to full health with a simple word, get up and walk, was for him a very small thing. He didn't even break a sweat. But for God the Son to forgive that man or any other sinner, for him to offer forgiveness and divine pardon and justifying righteousness, that was a much harder thing to do. Because when he extended forgiveness to that paralytic and later by implication to that tax collector, And when he extends forgiveness to you and to me or to any sinner, he does so on the basis of his once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Where he paid sin's penalty as a substitute for his people so that you and I might be forgiven. That then is the greater miracle in this text The miracle of forgiveness that God made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, to be sure, it is amazing that Jesus provided physical healing to this paralyzed man so that he could walk again. That is an amazing miracle, a supernatural creative act. But it is far more amazing to consider that the holy God of the universe, the second member of the Trinity, would condescend to take on flesh to become a man so that he might, having lived a perfect life, rescue cripples and criminals, paralytics and publicans, sinners and tax collectors, the worst of the worst, people like myself. And like you. And so, in the testimonies of these two men, we see the glories of the gospel because their testimonies contain the same core elements that your testimony contains. At one time, you were an unforgiven sinner as spiritually disabled as this paralytic and as spiritually contemptible as this tax collector. And then you met the Savior, not because you initiated, but because he initiated with compassion. He took notice of you. He set his gaze on you. And he called you to follow him, having given you eyes of faith and having granted you repentance. And in that moment of your conversion, when your inability and your unworthiness was overcome by his grace, 
Heaven said to you, your sins are forgiven. And from the standpoint of the self-righteous, your testimony makes no sense at all. Because that forgiveness was granted to you not on the basis of anything you had done. Your self-righteous efforts were like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. And yet through His Son at the cross, He took the penalty of sin away. Your sin was imputed to Him at the cross. He paid the penalty for it. And then His righteousness was accounted to you so that you're clothed in His righteousness, forgiven and justified, all because of what Christ the substitute did on your behalf. And therein lies the greatest miracle of all. The miracle of His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness. And here's why these two stories go together. In the first story, verses 1 to 12, we saw that the Savior is able to forgive. He has the authority to forgive sins. And in the second story, verses 13 to 17, we learn that He is willing to forgive sinners. He is both able and willing. If he was able but unwilling, we would be condemned, and rightly so, because again, we deserve punishment. If he was willing but unable, then our hope in him would be useless, would be disappointed, and we would be still dead in our sins. But what a Savior we have who is both able to forgive the unable and willing to forgive the contemptible and the worthless. We began this morning with the question, what is mankind's greatest problem? We conclude with the hope of God's incredible, gracious solution Our greatest need is for divine forgiveness, and as we've seen this morning, our glorious Savior is both able and willing to forgive. A couple years ago, probably more like five years ago now, a a group of men at the Master's Seminary put together a book. We were addressing contemporary issues in ministry, and One of the chapters in that book was written by Dr. Bill Barrick, who has now retired from the seminary. Before coming to TMS, Dr. Barrick had served for a number of decades as a Bible translator in the nation of Bangladesh, which is a predominantly Muslim country. And in that chapter, he was talking about how to witness how to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to Muslims. He was telling some of the stories of his experiences when he was there in Bangladesh. On one particular occasion, he and a fellow Christian worker were invited to the house of a Muslim man, and they asked when they got there if they could read from the Injil or the gospel of Jesus. And their host was willing to let them do that because in Islam, Jesus is considered a prophet. 
The account that they selected to read, and they did this intentionally, was the story of the paralytic. Recorded in Luke 5 and also in our text, Mark chapter 2, a man who was unable to do anything to merit forgiveness and yet was granted forgiveness by the grace and mercy of our Savior. After they finished reading, not sure what their Muslim host would think, they were surprised when he took their Bible and he read the very next section. It was the story of the tax collector, the worst of the worst, whom Jesus called to repentance and whom Jesus forgave. In that chapter, Dr. Barrick went on to explain why this text is so powerful in presenting the gospel to Muslims. He gave a number of reasons, but two stand out. First, this passage clearly presents the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus is God is unmistakable in this text. And of course, that's something that Muslims deny. Second, this passage also displays the reality of divine forgiveness. Islam teaches that Allah has the power to forgive, but whether or not He's willing to forgive is something no one can know for sure because forgiveness is always based on your works. It's a quid pro quo system, and Muslims are told they won't know if they're forgiven until they get to the day of judgment and their deeds are weighed in cosmic scales. What hopeless despair. How wonderful it is to know and to be reminded from our text that the true God is both able to forgive and willing to forgive, not on the basis of our futile efforts, but on the basis of His infinite Son. Divine forgiveness is not given because of your ability. The paralytic had no ability. It's not given because of your self-righteousness. The tax collector had no righteousness. It is entirely given on the basis of the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ extended to those who embrace Him in repentant faith. Those who come to Him, He will by no means cast out. Like the leper who said, Lord, if you are willing, you can cleanse me, Jesus will say to any sinner who comes, I am willing, I am willing, be cleansed. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure there are some here today hearing this message who are yet in the category of being unforgiven. I ask today that through the work of your Spirit, you would draw them to the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus, through whom we have the forgiveness of sins. For those who know and love the Lord Jesus, may this message be a cause for great celebration that we have been forgiven. You are both able and willing. Father, as we go, we ask that we would walk in the light of that truth as forgiven people serving a gracious King.
We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.